Welcome to the future of XYZ. I'm your host, Lisa Grelnick, principal and founder of LVG & Co., an independent strategy consultancy based in New York City. Through quick and candid conversations with innovative leaders, we aim to foster new thinking and explore big questions about where we are as a world and where we're going. Welcome to the Future of XYZ. Uh, this week, we have the privilege of speaking with Dr. Maria Anna Strongen. She is a licensed clinical psychologist in New York City. Uh, Mariana, thank you so much for joining us on Future of XYZ. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. And we're going to be talking uh, based on your uh, founding of the practice Strong In Therapy, as well as your co-founding recently during COVID of Caring for Caregivers in New York, which we'll talk about uh, quite a bit uh, as an impact on mental health uh, to because of COVID. We are going to be talking about the future of mental health. And I think the reason for this episode uh, being released today is, of course, it is uh, Mental Illness Awareness Week. And that has been around since the early 90s, I think actually in 1990, the first week of October. I think I'd, I'd like to start as a, you know, you've been in practice for over 10 years. What are we seeing that is different today? And not even COVID related, but pre-COVID even. What are we seeing today that's different than when, you know, this was founded in 1990? Sure. And, you know, I think mental health has certainly changed and most significantly in the last few years. But I think it's important to mention that, you know, one in five U.S. adults experience mental illness each year. And suicide continues to be one of the leading causes of deaths between the ages of um, 15 to 24. Um, and it's also important to mention that we're now finding that mood disorders and anxiety cost the global economy more than 1 trillion in lost productivity each year. And so we're seeing that a lot of resources are being pushed onto uh, mental health. And certainly the people are talking about mental health, but at the same time, we're surprised to see that things aren't really improving all that much. Um, there's more access, but we're seeing statistics only rise. And, and you know, suicide is, is one of the ways that we're seeing it. It's affecting kids younger and younger each year. And I think that's something that I've been reading about and I think a lot of parents are looking at is the, the, the rise in self-harm and suicide among teens and preteens. Yep. But also, of course, we're seeing those statistics rise with BIPOC, you know, people of color. Uh, essential workers during COVID, we'll get into the COVID thing, physicians, et cetera. But I mean, this is a scary statistic. And I think I read that WHO, the World Health Organization, says that it's actually the leading cause of death worldwide. And one in 100 deaths worldwide in 2021, you know, looking back 10 years, is in fact suicide. I mean, it that is. doesn't bode well for our mental health in the world. No, and, 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 and it's a frightening statistic to think because it's completely preventable. And while there are so many other diseases that still haven't found cures, we, we certainly know the cure to this one and it's not improving. And what would you say, I mean, this gets right into it. What would you say the cure is? I mean, as a, as a clinical psychologist, yeah. you know, you have lots of tools in the, in the, in the tool belt. Uh, there are different modalities, et cetera. What is your practice? What is your approach? And what do you think is the number one most, you know, effective pre preventative measure? 
Sure, sure. I mean, first of all, I think awareness globally is really important. I think with mental health, there's so much stigma. And what we're finding is that, you know, the more isolated a person is, the, the more likely they are to commit suicide and have a history of, you know, any kind of suicidal ideation. Um, but on top of that, globally, we need to see everybody um, doing more risk assessments on all in, in all ways. Like we're seeing that happen in schools. We're seeing that happen in hospitals. Um, a lot of mental health issues are one of the leading causes of all the ER visits. So I think as long as people are trained to understand mental health disorders on all platforms, the more we can be there to prevent it. From my perspective, I always say, um, you know, talking about something is incredibly powerful because the second it comes outside of your body, you can observe it, you can share it, and you can edit it. And that's really meaningful. The, the problem is that most keep it inside. We've also found, you know, research is, it has done a lot of work on this and they have found that together with medication and therapy, um, things like suicide can be really preventable um, and can absolutely treat depression and anxiety. And so, I mean, we talk about awareness and I think, you know, it's the awareness of one's own. I think I saw something like in 2021, the statistic was released that 47.1 million or 19% of the American population has self-reported a mental, um, you know, uh, uh, I, I guess it's a, a mental health issue of some kind, yeah. you know. Yes, it's like one in five, apparently. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's exactly around 20%. Like it is a massive statistic, but when we talk about awareness, those are people who are already self-aware enough they've either been diagnosed or they know that there's a problem the the hidden numbers are far greater what is the role that you think helpful or unhelpful of someone like a michael phelps you know the swimmer and or the naomi osaka as the tennis player of the world really raising consciousness and awareness of men, their own mental health journeys is it is it helpful for the average person or is it is it increasingly stigmatizing somehow no, I actually think it's really helpful. I think it's really helpful for somebody like Naomi Osaka to say no to things, right? Um, and, and I think saying no, setting boundaries, setting limits is incredibly powerful for our mental health, which is why you know, in the time of COVID, when we're not able to say no to more work and we're not able to create proper boundaries, we've seen such an increase in mental health issues and have seen things like burnout just skyrocket like we've never seen before. Um, so I think that all of that is helpful. And I think, you know, I'm seeing that there's trends on social media where people talk very candidly and openly about their anxiety and depression. And certainly the younger community, my children's age, they're so used to talking about their feelings and their therapists. And there's very little stigma now with that generation, which I'm really happy to see. So I hope that for their generation, they're going to catch it much earlier. I think it's really interesting. I mean, I think that there's, uh, and I think about my grandmother and my grandfather, which like the greatest generation, right? Where it was like the stoicism. And even today, there is a carryover in a lot of cultures worldwide, including in Western Europe, you know, mental health is not treated in the same way. And yet COVID has really brought to the fore, I think, what, you know, human beings don't like uncertainty and change. No, and COVID no. has thrown all routines into the air. As you said, forget the burnout side. That's the other side of it, right? 
yeah. which we'll talk about. But it is actually just the uncertainty. Every day, not knowing what's happening. And I think the pressures, especially on parents and yeah. caregivers of other natures, but really, I mean, the pressure is so real. And this is a global occurrence. Do you think that COVID in some ways is actually going to help help us as we talk about mental illness awareness week like increase awareness around mental illness um because so many more people are dealing with issues head on i hope so and i've certainly seen that trend in my practice where i've started to get a lot of referrals of patients friends and patients family members which tells me that everyone is somewhere talking about their therapy in a very open way when i first started my practice it was super rare to get a referral from somebody connected to my patient, which I found really interesting. And I thought as a, as a new private practice clinician, I thought, well, how do you build, right? How do you build a practice without people talking about it? Right. Um, and now it's completely the opposite. You know, they, they will call and say, is it okay if you see a friend of a friend? Is that close enough? Or is that too disconnected? Because everyone is talking about it. And I, I'm really happy about that trend. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good one. I mean, you, you we talked about, I mean, you've obviously been practicing COVID through, I mean, I want to talk about teletherapy for a minute because I, I mean, even myself, I mean, you suddenly go from like going into an office, which, you know, you were seeing many patients, but then all of a sudden your caseload can be a whole bunch bigger because A, you're getting all these referrals because people yeah. are talking about, but all of a sudden you're doing it via Zoom or whatever the platform, secure platform is. How, what does teletherapy look like and how does that weigh in? do you think to the future of mental health? Sure, that's such a big question. I could go in so many directions with that. <laughs> I like but those, lob it, lob it too big. Yeah, but you know, I think for me, it happened so quickly. I didn't even get to realize what was happening. Um, you know, when COVID happened, it was a weekend in New York City where everything shut down. And it was that Monday that I began seeing everybody um, through Zoom, FaceTime, whatever we were able to access at that time. We didn't even know what was secure or not, but I knew that I needed to see my patients. And within the first seven days, it was incredible how we all adjusted, right? And I was able to have a really good insight into people's worlds. I was able to see the room that they were in and who they were with and, and see them at hours I normally wouldn't see them um, and see them balance work life and home life. It was actually really, really helpful. It was harder on my end in balancing all of that. Yes. But once I got into the swing of things, it, it was really impactful. And, you know, I, it made mental health care so accessible. I was surprised. I thought that a lot of things would get in the way like Wi-Fi or some kind of security or, you know, and it didn't, it was really easy. Um, and I think my patients and I, we've gotten really good at that kind of a relationship. At some point um, this year, I also was able to bring people back in person after everyone received their vaccines and we were sort of feeling really hopeful. And that certainly brought in a whole different kind of energy. I mean, I saw patients who I had never met. I had been seeing for over a year and I met them for the first time on session, you know, 100 or something <laughs> like that. Right. Yeah, totally. Um, I also saw patients who, who got pregnant, had kids and then came back into person and were now a much bigger family. So people, you know, reached major milestones. And I was so grateful that teletherapy allowed me to stay doing what I'm doing 
and not missing a beat with these patients. Absolutely. No, I think that's a, it's a powerful um, antidote to the horrible isolation is in fact that it becomes more accessible. Um, do you think that teletherapy is here to stay? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it will be the primary way people access therapy. I think for my patients who many are very hardworking New Yorkers who balance too many things, probably the commute to see me um, being taken out of the formula was a huge plus for them. And companies now are allowing their employees to kind of take out a conference room and do therapy. And so now the patients who used to come see me at 7 p.m. after work, exhausted, are able to see me at one o'clock yeah. during the day at work. Yeah. No, I think it's powerful. I, I, and, and in terms of kind of like you're treating all sorts of things, um, one of the things that you noticed very early on uh, during COVID, of course, was the fatigue and burnout along frontline physicians who were dealing in the hospital system of New York City that was totally overwhelmed and overrun by COVID patients. Um, and you and a psychiatrist friend of yours, I believe, or a colleague, uh, founded Caring for Caregivers, which you've now shut down because the burnout on your clinicians was even marked to, to the physicians. But can you talk about that a little bit and also this impact on the essential workers uh, during the, the, the pandemic? Sure, sure. So um, a colleague of mine, Dr. Lori Pluchik and I, we, we started uh, caring for caregivers very early in the pandemic, I would say probably end of March, because we were seeing that the city was asking us to help them with their hotlines. And once we got to understand what they were asking of us, we realized it really wasn't a good use of our clinical skills. So we started to get referrals of doctors and started seeing them pro bono ourselves for the first three months. And we thought that was a really great way to kind of get them in, get them talking. Um, and then after three months, we all thought after three months, things would improve. We thought, okay, then they'll become paying patients and then all will be okay. Yeah. And then what happened was that we started to get so many calls and so many hospitals asking us for more clinicians that we then um, recruited the, all the clinicians who we trusted, um, which was not a large amount because we really wanted to make sure everybody who was providing care was top-notch New York City clinicians. And it just continued to grow so much that we then had to create a program where we were screening new clinicians because everybody wanted to help out. You know, as a therapist, we were doing the work, but we wanted to get closer to the front lines. Yeah. Um, and so, we, you know, we recruited over a hundred um, clinicians in New York who were providing free therapy. Wow. And we had over 80 frontline physicians in treatment. And the program ran, um, I think almost like 18 months. And when we shut it down, we shut it down just because at almost every clinician had done almost two rounds with, with, with patients. And we just felt like that was a really nice way to kind of end it and make sure that our own clinicians weren't burnt out um, oh. from having seen so much. Well, and I think that there is this conversation around burnout, I think, as far as mental health goes, right? I mean, COVID, we've talked about increased suicide rates, you know, the sense of isolation, the uncertainty, the anxiety and depression spikes. I mean, what what is, you know, what do you think the lasting impact of COVID? I mean, we're, we're not, you said before, you know, you brought people back when we were hopeful and we thought that this was like going to be done. There have been yeah. many moments when all of us, like it was going to be 
three months. It was going to be this. It was going to be that. Like we are noticing now, I think that COVID is here to stay. It is part of our, our new normal. Um, what do you think the lasting impacts of this last, let's call it 18 months and, and the continuation of COVID are, are going to be on the populace, uh, maybe across different generations or just in general? Yeah, you know, my biggest worry um, at first was that the physicians were going to experience such compassion fatigue that that entire field might change or people might not go into the field or perhaps even leave it. Um, but I think overall, you know, the population is so burnt out and is having a hard time creating boundaries between their home life and their work life. Um, and also trying, you know, when, when we are in a setting where we can't control the future, which we really never can, but now it's even more present than ever, we start to try really hard to control whatever we can. And so what people are doing is they're just working. They're just putting their heads down and working, which is creating some form of short-term control, which can feel quite good, but on the long-term it's really, really detrimental. And so I do think we're going to have a huge mental health impact, you know, in, in all regards. Yeah. Thank you for that. I mean, not, it's, it's hard to reconcile. I think, you know, one of the things I talk a lot about with, with friends is like, what's the lasting impact of, of grief? You know, there's like the stages of grief that people talk about, you know, like, I don't even know what they are, but like acceptance and, you know, denial, acceptance, whatever. And I feel like collectively as a world, COVID has forced us to do our own grieving processes, but they're yes. continued, right? It's not something that's in the past. You yeah. may have lost people, one person, many people. You may have lost your job, where yeah. you used to live, your way of life, whatever. Like we're grieving so much, right? We are. And I think it's important to mention that in, in most cases, we're exposed to a trauma that is a one-time incident. Like, you know, we, we just had the anniversary of September 11th, which was one day, but also, you know, trauma for so long. This is in fact so different because this is what we call complex trauma in that there is no beginning and there is not really an end. And so it's a sustained form of trauma, which, you know, we're seeing for the first time in this generation. Mm-hmm. That's, a, it's very interesting. And uh, the, the concept of trauma, I had a guest on a couple of weeks ago who deals, uh, it was on the future of urban violence and their, their approach for the last 33 years of dealing with these kids who are really literally killing each other in the streets um, is to kind of deal with trauma through cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT um, and giving new tools and allowing kind of recidivism and, and the time. And what we're seeing, what you're describing is a sustained trauma to the entire population yes. um, and what that impact is on generations to come, I think is going to be, you know, kids not in school, et cetera. So what are the, as we, as we kind of come towards the end of this conversation. Um, what are the tools in your toolkit? What do you think the average person who may or may not have access to mental health right now can do, you know, to, to, to kind of come out of this and to grieve properly and not have this sustained trauma that will impact us for the rest of our lives? Sure. Um, you know, I think talking is so powerful. Um, and just like I started um, our session today with, you know, I think the more that we can talk and listen, the more that we are connected to others and the world around us. And I think, you know, COVID has shown us what isolation can really do to someone. And I think, you know, if you can get in the habit of taking your emotions and your feelings 
outside of your body in a variety of ways, right? Exercise, talking, you know, self-expression, um, doing things that you enjoy, ways to get all of the feelings that you're experiencing outside of your body, the more likely you are to not keep it in. And it's the keeping it in that's causing all of the serious mental health problems that we're seeing. So I get, you know, I always say to my patients, you know, emotion needs motion. It's my favorite thing to say because we need to get it at, we need to get it moving, no matter what stages of grief you're in or trauma or mood disorders, that ties it all together. We have to get it out. I, I, I really appreciate that. I think, um, and I think that anyone listening to this or anyone who's yeah. ever thought about getting help or has gone through you know, a, thera- a therapeutic process, that getting it out and the, f- the freedom that comes from that the ability to see it outside of yourself right is very very powerful um do you think that there's a role for a kind of collective i'm not even talking small group therapy i'm talking like collective global grief counseling therapy whatever like what does what do you think the future of mental health could look like if it were really done on a mass scale and is that even an option Sure. I think it is starting to get done on a mass scale in larger group settings, right? So in places like corporations, they're addressing this. They're getting people to come together in subgroups, right? And to form that. It's happening, but in in smaller ways, which I hope will translate into something bigger. Schools are addressing it. The government system is addressing it. So I hope with time we'll get there. Mariana, Dr. Mariana Strongin, thank you so much for joining us today on Future of XYZ to talk about the future of mental health. It's such a critical topic. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Everyone watching, uh, if you need a therapist recommendation, uh, log on um, and find out from Mariana where to go. Um, or there are lots of other programs, including the National Alliance on Mental Illness that runs uh, Mental Illness Awareness Week. We all can use a little therapy uh, and awareness building at this moment in uh, the craziness of COVID and the world. Um, and to subscribe, obviously, to Future of XYZ in general. So every week you can get a new exciting and interesting an important topic uh, with an expert. You can follow us on Instagram at Future of XYZ, YouTube, Apple, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts, uh, and be sure to visit future-of.xyz. We look forward to seeing you next week. Mariana, thank you again. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Future of XYZ. If you like what you've been hearing, please follow Lisa Grelnick on LinkedIn. Visit future-of.xyz or subscribe to the Future of XYZ podcast on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts.